Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Adam Pertman, president of the National Center on Adoption and Permanency, to the show to discuss big picture issues in adoption and permanency. Part two will be released on July 5th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am Karen Doyle Buckwalter, your host, joining you here from Chaddock to bring you another episode. Today, I am going to be interviewing Adam Pertman. I'm excited to tell you a bit about his background and get to the interview. Let me share a bit with you about what Adam has done um, in the world related to adoption. Um, He is the CEO, founder, and president of the National Center on Adoption and Permanency, a unique nonprofit that provides research, resources, education, training, consulting and advocacy to improve the lives of children's families and the professionals who serve them. The National Center on Adoption and Permanency has the mission to move child welfare policy and practice beyond the traditional child placement model to a new paradigm focusing on enabling children and their families to succeed. Adam Pertman had a long career as a respected journalist before taking this position at the National Center on Adoption and Permanency. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. He has reported on child welfare and was for 20 years a senior reporter and editor with the Boston Globe, where he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his writing on adoption. He had journalism positions at the Globe. His assignments included many things, including the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Philippine Revolution, the first Gulf War, and the Oklahoma City bombing, just to name a few. Adam has delivered hundreds of keynotes, trainings, and other presentations internationally, and his commentaries on families and children have appeared in major print, broadcast, and online publications nationwide and actually worldwide. As a leading expert on family issues, he's widely quoted across media platforms such as in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, among others. He's also been a guest on many programs, including Oprah, Today, The View, and Nightline, which ran a segment about him. So I am so excited to be talking with him today. I think that having a journalistic perspective on issues such as adoption, and we'll talk a bit too specifically how that relates to attachment, um, but it gives us a different, bigger picture view of what adoption means in the world. So I am looking forward and stay tuned he will be coming right up. Thank you to everyone who signed up for the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for July 2022. While registration for this round of classes is closed, we will be opening up registration again soon for January 2023 classes. Head to tkcchattock.org to sign up for the waiting list and get notified when registration goes live. 
Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast today. It is my pleasure to be here. Very, very glad. Yes. Well, um, I know as I was giving an update on your background before you came on the air, I was reminded once again about the incredible amount of things that you have done in the field of adoption. Um, One thing I want to make sure to bring up is your book adoption nation that i would recommend everybody buy um it was first published in 2000 and then a full revision in 2011 um so i just wanted to start out by mentioning that because that book really opened my eyes to so many things thank you thank you i will give myself one more quick plug uh, yes please do with my colleague David Brodzinski, we also were the editors and, and p- partly writers of a book on LGBT adoption. And that's, it's a more academic uh, tome. Um, yes. But for, but for the right audience, I think it's highly relevant information, especially as uh, gay and lesbian adoption really is flourishing. I mean, it, and it has for years. Yes. Thank you for drawing our attention to that. Now, is where could could people find that on Amazon or? Yeah, yeah. You can go to Amazon if you want to. You'll start with shameless plugs. So if you go to NCAP, NCAP, National Center on Adoption Permanency, if you go to NCAP-US.org, um, you'll see books by it, my books, but you'll also see books by other NCAP authors. And so if, you know, if you want a one-stop shop for, for a lot of very solid adoption-related, child welfare-related, because it's broader, um, books, that's a good place to start. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And um, as I was mentioning earlier, I felt like as a clinician and somebody working with adopted children and a lot of our listeners are clinicians, you know, you read a lot of specific things about attachment. Of course, you know, that's what this podcast is about and trauma and adoption. And but to have a journalistic perspective is a much broader, different thing. And I found myself reading your book thinking um, when I first read it, I, I should have read this a long time ago like I shouldn't be doing this work this long having not read your book so that is one of the reasons I really was thrilled to have you be here on on um, attachment theory in action so thank you you know I I have to say that it's one of the shames of the field of adoption per se, but again, also more broadly child welfare, um, that there's so much secrecy and shame and stigma. And, you know, to this day, and this isn't a plug, this is a a sad observation. Uh, To this day, it's really the only broad-based book that looks at adoption deep and wide. Everything is sort of narrow. Yes. I I wish it weren't true. I really wish it weren't true. Um, But I think all those things I said, the stigma, the shame, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's not taught in schools. It's it's nutty. Um, And I think that history is the principal reason for it. And and I I think hope and pray that we're we're emerging in some in some way from that uh, that era. Yes, I agree with you completely, because as I started reading this, I thought this is I have read so many things about adoption and this is not like anything I've ever read. 
Um, yeah, so I absolutely agree with that. So, so could you share with listeners what got you started on this journey? Um, and you know, how, how you ended up where you're at now? Um, of course I gave a little bit of your bio, but I, I want to hear your personal rendition of all of that. Absolutely. Um, and we have three hours, right? So (laughs) no, I'll I'll make this brief. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. So um, decades ago, because I'm no longer that young, decades ago, when my wife and I were were ready to start a family, we discovered we were infertile. No no shocker there. Lots of people. We tried all the different things that people try. Um, And adoption was one of the options. And we never flinched at. We didn't have some of those um, negative stereotypes in our heads. Although, to be fair, um, I have to say that in retrospect, and I write this in the book, most of what we thought we knew going in was not right. (laughs) I mean, where where did we get accurate information? You know, people still whispered about, whispered the word adoption. Yes. They lied to their own kids about where they came from. And some still do, I have to say. Um, So, but we didn't have that negative, that negative piece of it, you know, oh, we have to, we have to do this because everything else failed. No, it's fine. Um, Mm -hmm. So we, we went uh, to an informational session. And this is this is the answer to your question. Um, We went to an informational session at a local adoption agency, no great homework done. First thing I tell people now is do your homework, but I didn't. Um, so we we went to a, a local agency and did an informational session. And I was a journalist then with the Boston Globe. And what I saw, what I learned just from that brief one hour um, session was that there was this whole universe of stuff that I knew almost nothing about. Yes. Um, it was crazy. And so what does any journalist want to write about? Things that impact a lot of people, but that people don't know a lot about. So I said, I want to write about this. And it wasn't so it wasn't out of some passion that came later. Uh, you know, oh, I'm an adoptive dad and I want to write about it and I want to do it with my life. You know, the passion comes, but that it was a journalistic exercise. I saw it, what I in speeches, what I used to say is that, you know, if a journalist gets a speeding ticket on the highway with a new radar gun, uh, they want to write about the radar gun. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's and, and that's very much what it was. And so eventually it took a long time because I got transferred to California and all kinds of stuff happened. Um, but eventually they the Globe uh, said, OK. And so I wrote a three part multi-page big series called the adoption revolution um it was it was nominated for a pulitzer it got big attention um i i've as a journalist i covered wars and i covered politics and i covered all kinds of stuff in my career and nothing had ever had ever gotten close to getting the response that that series did it was because it was so personal and it touched people in a different place and like the book i i have to say it was different i mean i i really approached it very differently than it had been written before so it it got a lot of traction is the bottom line um and so that led i'm I'm cliff notes here that led after some time uh to um my i i'm memories flooding back so in speeches, I used to say, I still make speeches, but I don't say this anymore, that um, that I did what every good father would do for his kid. I quit my job. Um, what I knew after I did that series basically was 
I struck some chord, not just with other people, though that was true, but within myself. I wanted yes. to do this. I wanted to, to dig deeper. I wanted to give more. I, I thought there was a lot here that people don't know. And so I wanted to do every journalist wants to write a book. I found my subject. And it was during the writing of the but it was still a journalistic exercise. Yes. Um, I found my subject. Um, it was during the writing of the book that I realized this is way more than that. This is about me, my kids, my family, and all the kids like them and all the families like ours and all the women out there who have parted with their children for adoption, who yes. are traumatized and who are having attachment issues. And, you know, there is a, the, the whole gamut of stuff that people just weren't writing about. And so it, 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 about, I, about a third of the way writing the first book, um, I realized this is something else. This is something. And so I re started rewriting and I rewrote and it became a better book um, because I, it did it did reflect what was happening, not only what was happening in the field, but what was happening in my life and what that feels like. And so what it turned into, and you've read it so you know, is a series of stories. Um, yes. It's, it's a sociological, you know, literary kind of book, but it's 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 a bunch of stories supported by research, supported by experience, supported by people's own voices. So it so it reads differently, um, and while it informs, and that was the goal. You know, that was the melding of the journalist with the with the passionate dad finally came through um and 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 i have to say the the uh, social warrior this wrong word but um, you know it really is about equality it's really about fairness it's because uh, you know adoption still used as a pejorative you know don't tell johnny's adopted what the hell is that yes um, Fill in some other word for or or you can say the same for adoptive parents. Oh, it's so wonderful that you adopted. But I am sorry you couldn't have any real children. Well, if I did such a good thing, why do you feel sorry for me? Yeah. Um, so and so and and we still drive uh, women, uh, birth mothers, first mothers undergrounds. And so, you know, it, 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 it there's a lot of work to do. And so after I wrote my book, the short version again, I wanted to stay in the field. Yes. I didn't know what the hell that meant. Um, but about a year later, after I quit the Globe, I got an offer from the what was then the Evan B. Donaldson Adoption Institute, which was a, a little think tank, uh, national New York based. Um, and they I got a, literally got a phone call from a board member saying, would you come to New York? And I thought, great, a consulting gig in the field I want to be in. But yes. they were inviting me to, to take the job to, of executive director. So I had no, no experience. They were crazy people. <laughs> I had no experience doing anything like that, uh, running a national not-for-profit. But it turns out I could do it. And I stayed for almost a dozen years, built it into a, a pretty influential yes. force in the field. And, um, and now I'll shoot forward. And I left there. Um, it, it, having done my work and, and left it in good good shape. And then what I saw after a dozen years, well, by that point, more than a dozen, but anyway, what I saw cumulative from all the research that I, I did and supervised and, you know, the, the, the many things I got to do um, is that there was, there was a gap in the field. Um, and 
so I started a new organization, my current organization, the National Center on Adoption and Permanency. And I'll wrap it up with this because long enough. And the mission it tells the tale. So child welfare generally and adoption in particular is built around the notion of placement. Every child deserves to be in a safe, permanent and loving family. No argument. Nobody's going to argue with that. And so you got to place him or her in that family, whether it's a family of origin or a new family. And that's the, the that's the paradigm. Uh, for, mm-hmm. That's how metrics are, are taken. That's how money is allotted, et cetera, yes. to get kids placed. And the gap that I felt we had, and I started and kept to fill, is that the so because of the nature of the children, and we'll, now we'll finally talk about what we're here to talk about, because of the nature of the children, most kids who are adopted today by long shot, uh, by long, long, long shot, um, have special needs. Yes. And systems weren't built for that. So just placing a child with special needs into a new family or restoring the original family. So there are safe, permanent, loving families all over the country that we've created that where life is hell on wheels every day. We Mm -hmm. haven't done the work for that child. We don't provide the supports or the resources or the education or the services. So what have we done? What have we succeeded in doing? And I think that the the reason so so many uh, terrible stories wind up in the news is because it, it's all about child placement. So NCAP's mission is to move the paradigm from a child placement model to a family success model. Mm-hmm. Every child deserves a safe, permanent, loving, and successful family. And what that means changes from state to state and family to family. But the goal is the right one and how you resources, how you educate, what you do for for and with that family changes. And the the kid has a real shot. And so that's, in a nutshell, um, NCAP. And and that's how I got here. Yes. And how, what year did NCAP start? I, I have to look at the months, but seven, eight years ago. Yes, yes. And uh, as someone who's worked in the foster care system, it it's so true what you're saying that the parent, we, we even use that, that, I mean, maybe to some, someone outside of this work, it sounds strange, placement, how many placements, you know, <laughs> were conducted this year. And, you know, when you think about that, that that is, that's the beginning. That's not the end. You know, we, we say it as though, okay, check that off. Exactly. We've done our job. You know, it, it is the, it's the functional equivalent in, in psychological terms of saying we've taken the kids who live in wheelchairs and put them all in houses with loving, wonderful parents, but they don't have ramps. And they don't understand the issues that someone who, who can't walk confronts every day. Well, that's nutty. We would never think to do it. But this is true with mental health stuff altogether, right? And behavioral yes. health stuff altogether. I mean, we don't really get it. Well, the kids are in foster care, and that's where the vast majority of adoptions take place today. Kids are in foster care for a reason. Early childhood trauma, you know, right. neglect, whatever. 
And so, you know, they are functionally, you know, metaphorically in a wheelchair and we do so little for them and right. then expect that we've done our job and now we can go away and get the next one. It doesn't work. Yes. And, you know, at one point, you know, I was in Chattock where I work is in Illinois, and that is a state that's had some of the premier research on post-adoption and post-adoption services. Um, and, you know, sometimes I would, when I would work with other states about rates of adoption disruption, for example, you know, because obviously wanting to prevent that, that does not fit in with what you just said, family success. And right. they would say, I don't know if this will shock you or not. We don't track that. Oh, I, I know it. One of the first studies I did, we did. What are you talking I, about? It was on this and we couldn't find anything. I mean, it was crazy. Yes. I mean, well, what what happens? Like, what do you mean you don't? I mean, you don't track it like that. Really? That, we've done that's, our job already. Yes. I, I just even now saying it to you, I can't quite wrap my brain around it. Yeah. Um, because that means everything unraveled that you did, like it didn't work and family struggling, child struggling. Where is that child? It just was um, astonishing to me that there wasn't, especially having been in Illinois where post-adoption services were talked about a lot, you know, not that we had everything perfect there or have everything perfect there, but there was an acknowledgement that post adoption you may need support at least but you know what even the 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 the, the language we use not just language because it's it, it plays out in real life yes most adoption as though again just like yes. the disruption statistics as though we've done our job right and this is post after we've done our job we'll do some more for you yes that's the problem it means that when when a budget is tight or when you get a new supervisor, those some of those services go away. Well, the people didn't lack, didn't suddenly not need them. Right. So, so part of this change of paradigm that I talk about is integrating those services, the train, everything from training to ongoing support becomes part of the process, not a post, a pre. Yes. Yes. If it's not all part of a seamless whole, it, it's not going to work. It yes. Just, can see it play out every single day. That's not saying that a lot of families don't succeed. They absolutely do. Mm -hmm. But institutionally, it's a zip code problem. If you live in Illinois or in some parts of Illinois, you'll get some services. If you move across the border to another state, you won't get those services. If you live in some states, you'll get no services. You're the same family with the same needs. Yes. Or, the same yes. Needs. Yeah. Or you um, move so. to the other state, but the expectation is the state you adopted in supposed to do something. And there's sort of this, you know, passing back and forth. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, we need to reweave the fabric and not just patch it. Yes. Yes. Now you had mentioned, and this, I think this is an important thing for us to, to talk about a, a bit more is you know, I think some people, when they think of children with attachment difficulties, they're thinking, oh, these shows I saw about children in orphanages and things like this and, you know, international adoption. Um, and what I think I would want listeners to get a, a, an education here on 
what is the state of international adoption? You know, when you started this work, what is it now bringing us to this time where you just uh, stated most adoptions are from the child welfare system? Well, so I, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to broaden it a, my answer a bit. So I, there are three types of adoption, generally speaking, because there's step parent. There are all sorts of variations, but um, in, infant adoption, babies born to to moms in the in the U.S. Yes. who who are relinquished voluntarily for adoption. Um, there are inter-country adoptions from other countries. We'll, I'll start with that since you asked, and then the bulk. The, and I'll give you numbers in a sec. Um, and the bulk of the adoptions, which are child welfare adoptions, they're from the foster care system. Okay, so starting with intercountry adoptions, intercountry adoptions, it flourishes hard to to say. The numbers were never as big as people perceived them to be, but a couple as of a couple of decades ago, it was steadily rising because of adoptions from China, adoptions from Russia, adoptions from Guatemala. Uh, none of which take place in any numbers at all today. But those were on the rise for various socio socioeconomic reasons and political reasons and all that. But the bottom line was the U.S. reached about 21, 22,000 per year from other countries, uh, kids coming from other countries and adopted. Uh, and that would have been the peak. Like that was the, the peak. highest number. That was the highest number. Today, it's around 3,000. Mm -hmm. And the, again, different reasons for different countries. And there's a Hague International Convention and all that overlays. But the bottom line is today, and, and a lot of those children, the 21,000, were, you know, healthy-ish. Um, they were younger. They, they experienced fewer childhood traumas. They were institutionalized for less time by definition if they were adopted younger, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of differences. Today, they're roughly, I, I, I haven't seen the numbers in a little bit, but under 3,000 a year. And, yes. and it's virtually all children with special needs akin to those of children adopted from foster care. So they are the early childhood trauma institutionalized. They're in sibling groups. They're older. They're kids with special needs. International adoption by, by almost any measure is, an is a special needs program. Um, so that's the reality. They have all, you want attachment issues, grow up, spend, spend five, 10 years in, in an institution with, with marginalized and negative and care and all sorts of, even in the best of circumstances and your, yes. your, your people understand this, there's going to be trauma. There's going to be attachment yes. issues. I mean, you know, they don't have what we would, anything near an optimal existence or upbringing. And then they're brought to a whole new country where they don't speak the language and they don't yes and we don't we don't think about all those things but they they certainly are another trauma they certainly result in attachment issues and some of them pretty significant so yes. that's and and some of them not uh, and, and they need families too by the way I'm not suggesting anybody should not but should not adopt those kids but eyes wide open and they need right. supports and they need uh, they need uh, services and they're going to need them from day one before day one and ongoing. So that's the inner country. And I'll jump to infant adoptions. Yes. Uh, so there there I think it's around three thousand. I, I can check. We know, by the way, what the numbers are of those, because each child gets a visa from the, co the country from which they are adopted. Right. So we know yes. those. Yes. And, and we know where they come from, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Infant adoptions are harder to track. 
um, they're they're you know they're finalizing courts, family courts all over the country. There's no one system that tracks all of those, so we don't know it exactly. We think it it's been pretty steady for a long time at around fifteen thousand a year, one five. And, and just for you know, listeners, we think of this. This is often re referred to as private adoption. Private adoption, the, right? What you're describing versus voluntary agency. relinquishment. Yes, versus an agency of babies. Program. Okay, of voluntary relinquishment of babies. Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, and those kids, I mean, by almost by definition, since they're generally adopted when they're very, very young, um, have fewer. Um, attachment issues, less trauma. But, you know, there's lots of science that says the separation just from the birth mother, from the yes. biological mother is, is a thing. It, yes, of course. People disagree on how much of an impact they have, but it's hard to imagine it has none. So there's some level that you're dealing with. And growing up, there are all sorts of microaggressions that come with, with um, being adopted. There are all sorts of issues of loss, and, and, you know, if we're honest with our kids, which I pray we are nowadays, well, they know there's another family. There are attachment issues. We, we can go into some depth, but there are attachment issues that come with that. Some of them, and it's not that they're, quote, bad, because you want, it's like really bad analogy, like divorce. You want the, the child to have relationships with both families, you know, if they're yes. remarried or whatever. But you 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 understand that there's some navigation to be done there. You yes. understand that there's some support that needs to be done there. And, you know, we've normalized that. We have not normalized it in the adoption world. We stigmatize it still. What do you mean he sees his birth mother on Friday? Every Friday? You yes. guess. I took my, my, um, my youngest kid to see his, to his grandmother, this is years ago, but to his grandmother's, biological grandmother's wedding it was her second marriage um and it was great it was wonderful they have a wonderful relationship we love her and everything was cool and when we got got back people said oh that's so cool oh was that creepy was that how did you do that how did he feel about as though you know we we it was great it was easy it was it was really nice now i'm not saying it's always easy but it's not normalized and yeah. if it's not normalized, then the child feels that. <laughs> I feel, uh, you know, the adults feel. Yes, that. yes. Um, and that, and that has repercussions. So, and then growing up, the, uh, there are all sorts of issues related to adoption, or or child welfare generally. Again, because not every kid is adopted. Some of them live in foster care all their lives. Um, a whole nother discussion. But it, and those that do have real, you want attachment issues. You be in your 14th placement at 15 years old and mm -hmm. tell me about attachment issues. Yes. And then you're adopted and God bless, you know, that that's great. But if you've lost your, your family of origin, whether you have relationships or not, yeah. and you've been in a couple of placements and you've been in temporary placements, trust is a really hard thing to engender at that point. Yes. That yes. The next adult is going to keep you and love you. Um, so all sorts of issues. So and and, and so I mix and now I got into child welfare, but but I, I'll go back to infant adoption. You know, some of these issues are very real because there is more than one family and it's not normalized. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have two siblings, 
and you want to have attachments. You want to have a relationship with them, but they're in your first family and your original family, and you're in this family, and it doesn't, it, it, it gets mucky. We can get into details. And then in child welfare, almost by definition, you have these issues at some level. Yes. With, with most of the people involved, and there are about 50 to 60,000 of those adoptions a year. So, and at, it, it, to your point, many more, many, many, many multiples of, of all the rest put together. Yes. And those, so, that's really adoption in America. That's the biggest piece. Um, and, you know, and we don't do great for them. And we don't yeah. provide those services and resources and understand that they have attachment issues, that understand that they, I mean, we understand it up here. Yes. We just don't act on the understanding. And, yes. and so, um, so, I mean, that's the lay of the land, generally speaking. And I, again, I think your listeners, your viewers get that just how profound those issues that relate to attachment and many other things uh, can be for people with these particular circumstances. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. There's so much. Um, I I see our first part of our podcast is uh, we're at uh, half past and I'm so looking forward to continuing this conversation, Adam. There's just so much wonderful information you have to share. So listeners, please join us next week where you will be able to hear part two of my interview with Adam Pertman. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.